Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're listening to a podcast right. from The Word. Shall we begin? Are we recording that? Are we okay? We're yeah. In the words of Bob Dylan at the beginning of what album is it? What, is it Rolling Bob? Is it Rolling Bob? <laughs> oh, yeah. What record is that? Bring it Nashville back home. Skyline. Nashville Skyline. Everybody knows it, Nashville Skyline, I'm guessing. It. Yeah, I think it is. I'm not that old, I just read about it. Um, okay. The first half uh, of this evening's I'm going to start that again. This evening's Word in Your Ear features somebody who's been on Word in Your Ear in the past, actually, round the corner in our early days at the Lexington, uh, perched on a stool on a a very high stage, if I remember correctly. And he was talking about his book, Isle of Noises, which was uh, an oral history, I suppose, of uh, English songwriters, which... uh, Talk to all kinds of songwriters, all kinds of well-known songwriters, and that was very well received. Not as well received, I think it's fair to say, as this book that we're going to be talking about this evening. Walls came tumbling down, uh, the music and politics of rock against racism, two-tone and red wedge, which was so well received that it actually won the Penderin Music Prize. Were there any other books uh, shortlisted for that, Dave? <laughs> yes, there were, Mark. Are you prepared to overlook the fact that yours was one of them and, and didn't win? It didn't win. <laughs> so, are there any kind of uh, fractious moments this evening? You'll probably and the understand or- why. <laughs> and the organisers did offer me as a, as a consolation prize and they rang up and asked for my address in order to send me a bottle of Welsh whiskey. Which, is which yet, you drank in one. Which is yet cried in the corner. Uh, but in the words of Spinal Tap, I'm a professional, I rise above it. Yep. And we welcome, please, Daniel Rachel. Can we turn the air conditioning off or down or something? We don't mind sweltering. We can hear, that's better. Okay, that's, that's better. Daniel, just as a bit of a... We always do this on the word podcast as a, a kind of citing shot, as a, an opening question. What kind of 
music playing mach- machinery was in your home when you were a child. What do you play music on? What did your parents have? Uh, my parents had a, uh, a record player, um, a stack system. And now that, the stack system was later. In fact, they had a, a separate record player and an amp. And up until I bought my own first record player, which came after a cassette player, the record player, I wasn't allowed to put on vinyl uh, unless my parent put it on. So, oh, yeah. and then, so, and then when I listened to the end, got to, got to the end of the first side, I then had to call one of them to come in. <laughs> This I is quite a, familiar, actually. Oh, really? Is that yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Drove, drove me nuts. We were five kids in the house, as we were. They, 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 they really didn't want to put on Adam Neant's Kings of the World Frontier right. for the 87th time, you know. So that's, that just, a that's, a, that's a kind of circuitous way of asking, how old are you? <laughs> <laughs> I'm younger than that now. <laughs> because you know, it, 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 where, where does your age stand in relation to the events that this book describes. How old were you when all this stuff happened? When I was at school, I walked into the Birmingham powerhouse uh, expecting to pogo to the electric guitar of Billy Bragg, but the first person I met was the politician, Claire Short, (laughs) (laughs) who was at a stand uh, uh, invited by Billy uh, to introduce the idea of politics to kids like me and I didn't really know who Claire Short was and I'm I'm certain I didn't know what an MP was but I made the connection that there was something to do with politics and music that Billy wanted me to know and and that was the Jobs for Industry tour um, which preceded Red Wedge by six months but it was the tour that convinced Paul Weller that the combination of politics and music could be successfully managed in a in a punk arena, and 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 so he took that idea forward. So how old were you when you? As a fifth year, you look simply young. <laughs> so you've got nothing to be ashamed of. You know, when you when you were confronted. No, so I was about fifteen when that. You were fifteen. Okay, yeah. right. At so, age eight, you your parents took a wrong turn in a car and and, and drove. Uh, mistakenly into a National Front demonstration, right? <laughs> which you can still remember, right? I'm sure very vividly. Well, these are the two... The two yeah. So these are... The, my mic's pulling up my flare. <laughs> Showing a bit of light. Feel like I'm on Parkinson's. Now, uh, um, that, there's two events that, that, that mark why I wanted to write this book. Yeah. So the first one was that, that event, of uh, the Jobs for Industry, Billy Bragg. And the first one was this event when I'm eight years old. And... Uh, and we were a Jewish family, so uh, with darker skin, and and so we uh, we were in a four Cortina, and we drove into Birmingham and into the city centre, which takes you through Digbeth, and that took us bang into the middle of a, of a National Front demonstration. And I remember my mum vividly screaming, "Scream, get us out, get us out!" You know, really terrified. And I, and I, I, I think my dad must have spun around the car. I don't remember that moment, but I do remember then looking back out of the window and being fascinated by the the color of the of the flag of the of the union jack that the predominantly what I, I think would be skinheads were holding and and the vividness of all those colors really made an impression on me and then i, I later found out that the uh, the clash 
uh, played that night in Barbarella's uh, because an, a riot ensued between the police, the uh, anti-Nazi League and Rock Against Racism yeah. against the, the National Front. And, and the opening sequence of that is on the Clash film Rude Boy. So when I revisited that film, uh, it, it, was it brought me... It was yeah. all familiar. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the two key figures uh, that appear at the beginning of the book, the first section of the book is about Rock Against Racism, you know, are uh, Red Saunders, who starts the... Um, the uh, on the, the wonderful pictures in the book, um, uh, uh, character on the left there. And, of course, Eric Clapton, who made this uh, outrageous uh, pronouncement on stage at Birmingham Odeon in 1976. Just remind us what happened there. Uh, he was on stage, August 1976. He asked the foreigners in the audience to put up their hand. And then he told the uh, Packies and the Wogs to go back home to their own country. And this is a guy who had two black singers in his band and had just had a big hit with I Shot the Sheriff yeah, by Bob Marley, which is astonishing, isn't it? Yeah, Transatlantic number one hit, yeah. I Shot the Sheriff by Marley's. And, uh, and he was given an opportunity to apologise and never, never did. Well, he wrote a letter, in actual yeah. fact, which I found, uh, which is in the book, uh, which was published a couple of weeks later in the music press. And he, he just said that uh, an Arab had pinched his missus's bunk oh, cool. in, right. in a, outside Harrods or somewhere. Yeah. Uh, and, but the, 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 he, he was drunk on the night, apparently. And the, the, I mean, this, the style of the, the way I present the book is through the words of all the people that I met. So, two of the, so there was a couple of witnesses to that gig, of which one of those was Dave Wakeling, who then went on to form The Beat. And he said that this wasn't just a, a, a random one-off comment. It was a, a, a comment that was expanded upon over the course of the evening where he backed Enoch Powell, who, of course, had made the Rivers of Blood speech and coincidentally had made that speech literally on the other side of New Street in the Midland Hotel in which Enoch Powell had called for, called for the voluntary repatriation of, of black people. Um, and then he, he talked about Powell, and, and two years later, Eric Clapton was on the front page of the Melody Maker, espousing similar views. So that led Red Saunders to do what? Well, he, Red Saunders at that time uh, was uh, in a, a, a left-wing theatre group, and he read the review uh, of the gig at the Birmingham Odeon, and having never written a handwritten letter in his life, decided to, to do so. And uh, it was signed by the, the group, uh, the theatre troupe, plus a couple of friends. And it had one critical line. And the critical line was, we need a rank-and-file movement against the racist poison in rock music. P.O. Box, Rock Against Racism. And within weeks... He was inundated with handwritten letters, and that was the birth of, of Rock Against Racism. So, and what did he do first? What were the first yeah, kind well, of events? You know, what, uh, what did he do to take it forward? Well, I, I love that idea, because you, you come up with this fanciful idea, don't you? And then, and then the, you know, and you, it, it, Rock Against, uh, Red, Red Saunders is, is an unknown person who's tried to lay down seeds in his life, and nothing has taken mm -hmm. root, if you like. And so this may be just another one of those things. And But what he decides to do is, is critical... Um, uh, to, I mean, he puts on a gig essentially, and the first gig is Carol Grimes. Carol Grimes. Yeah, she put a blues. Oh artist. yeah, the Roundhouse. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, no, in a pub in the East End, oh, right. not far from from where Oswald Mosley yeah. had, had tried to work. The, the Roundhouse 
came the following year with Aswad. Yeah. And the critical thing that, that he very quickly realized with the, with the formative group of about half a dozen people was that a rock against racism group would have a very simple political statement and it would be a political statement told in action. And the action was a white punk band plays first, a black reggae band follows, which will be a British reggae band, the first we've ever seen in this country. And then at the end of the evening, the members of both bands will be invited to jam on stage for the raw jam. And now, I guess, and, uh, we, we take that idea of black and white musicians sharing a stage as commonplace. It's, it's natural. It's, uh, but then it was very rare, you know. And these were, this was Sham 69 and Misty, is that right? And the Sex Pistols and Lyndon Crazy Johnson and Steel Pulse with the Stranglers, was that right? Yeah. Yeah, those are amazing combinations. Am- amazing combinations. Yeah. And you get extraordinary stories where the, the David Hines is the lead singer of, of, Steel of Pulse. Pulse and he yeah. goes out on tour with the Stranglers and he's never from from being brought up in Hansworth in a Jamaican community has never experienced the idea of punk, let alone what it means to go on tour with the Stranglers. And he, he, he tells a, a, you know, a, an anecdote in shock where he says, we're backstage and the women have got their breasts in the pints and the Stranglers are drinking them. And he thinks that's the most, you know, it's the most outrageous, decadent thing he's ever come across. And then he's totally shocked by it. And also, I'm more so shocked by the... the Just sheer... another day for the Stranglers. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but the, I mean, musically, he's shocked by the, the simplicity of what they're doing, you know. And this is, this is the odd thing, because when the, there's a marriage that happens between punk and reggae, yeah. but where the marriage doesn't happen is musically. I mean, David talks about the idea of 11ths and 13ths as chords, you know. This is unheard, to, unheard of, of, you know, D-A and E, to, you know, for yeah, a punk yeah, song, yeah. you know. But, but the marriage, as he's so articulate articulated by the various people is 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 in the schools in the mid 70s is in the the youth clubs and and this is a sharing of records a sharing of clothes a sharing of ideals so so by the time the clash decide to cover pressure drop by the maytels or police and thieves by by junior mervin the idea that somebody a white person in the mid seventies would want to infuse their songwriting with black rhythms is, is as as natural as David Hines in Steel Pulse or Brinsey and Aswad wanting to infuse their reggae tunes with the pop of the sixties that they've grown up with on the radio, like the Beatles and the Stones. Well, the major breakthrough was uh, this: a picture here of the, of the Rock Against Racism office. That's Red Saunders at the back, is it holding up a copy of? Uh, of Temporary Hoarding magazine. Next door to Finsbury Park Station. That's right, that's right. And uh, wonderfully, synchronicity, we have a police car going by. It's marvellous, <laughs> <laughs> which we've arranged beforehand. But the, one of the major breakthroughs was the uh, Rock Against Racism carnival in, uh, in Victoria Park, wasn't it? I mean, it's brilliant. An amazing the story. Uh, it's ama- it is an amazing story because they, cause they and the, the, this lot, you know, I think this is the story of the book, really, is that... That lot there, I try, I think that they, 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 well, they believe they've got this incredible idea, and they try and make events happen, and it's swiftly uh, uh, events happen around the country, and they decide to put on this concert. But to, to their mind, they have X-ray specs, f- uh, steel pulse, steel pulse, f- 
Fitzpatrick, what's his name? Uh, Patrick, Patrick Fitzgerald. Patrick Fitzgerald. And the Tom Robinson band to, yeah. uh, to headline. They haven't got The Clash because The Clash won't do it because their manager is telling Rock Against Racism people, we'll only do it, Bernie Rhodes is saying, we'll only do it if you buy a tank for Zimbabwe. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> and that's the deal. So, they, so the clash on on any of the posters. And so, meanwhile, Rock Against Racism, they they have to tell the council how many people are you expecting, and they 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 ten thousand. So there's toilets enough for maybe five thousand. And the night before, in Hackney, Red and his wife and his friends are making cheese butties, oh, and they start right. filling up the bath because they're going to feed the 5,000. That, that's going to be enough, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So how did they react when 80,000 people went to Trafalgar Square and marched all the way? To well, this is extraordinary. It, 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 they all go to Trafalgar Square, and there's great stories of them, all these coaches coming down from yeah. Manchester, from Scotland, from Cornwall, from wherever, and, you know, and, and then they descend on... Trafalgar Square, and then they marched seven miles. Nobody believed that a, 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 an essentially punk crowd would march seven miles to go and see the clash, and, uh, and, 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 and so they do. And it's a remarkable concert, you know, and um, in that crowd, right in the middle, is Billy Bragg. Yeah, his reaction is fantastically interesting, isn't it? Because he realises that, that it, it, it's about discrimination of all kinds. It's not just, yeah, just racial discrimination. And it's at the moment that the headliners, uh, Tom Robinson Band, who've had the hit 2468 Motorway, that's why they're the headline band. Clash are relatively unknown. And when they sing... Uh, glad to be gay. Glad to be gay. Yeah. Billy, for a split second, says, well, I thought we were here against fighting against uh, racism. And then he realises, as he sees gay people kissing, it's the first time he's ever seen an out gay person. And in that moment, he realises this is how his generation is going to be defined. It's going to be a generation defined against uh, standing up for all minorities who are oppressed by be it neo-Nazis or fascism of any sort. And, and of course, I, th I think it's Dr. Robert in the book that delivers the great line when the big debate about what did the clash actually do politically, what did they offer, and Pete Jenner, their manager, is saying they, they don't got a political I ideological stance that they could put a five pence on, you know. They, it was, you know, they wanted big hotels and flash cars, they wanted to be the people's band. And, and Dr. Robert says... The clash delivered Billy Bragg. <laughs> <laughs> the next, gen next generation, yeah, really. Next generation. Yeah. Right. So that, that, that it's a thread that goes all the way through the book, isn't it? Is, the, is this kind of tension between trying to use the celebrity of, of people and, and the celebrities have different agendas, don't they? You, know, you have to have the clash because you have to have a star. Right, right, but a right. star is looking for something different, aren't they? they? Yes. They kind of see themselves as bigger than But they... Rock Against Racism don't use celebrity. That's, I think that, that would be possibly a, a, uh, a, a retrospective idea of perhaps where Rock Against Racism were because the bands attached to it all the way through to 81, 82 become well-known bands, you know, from the, from the, say, the Au Pairs and Sham 69 and Gang of Four to the Specials to the clash 
to, but yet they, Rock Against Racism's big thing was to be grassroots and get bands at the beginnings of their career. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned temporary hoarding. There's a, there's one, one edition says, we need a call out to all bands around the country. Who wants to play for Rock Against Racism? This is a list of the bands so far that are interested. And 100 bands are listed. And of those 100, and these are all, you know, you can imagine you're in a band in Brum and you're thinking, great, I'll get on the bandwagon. Or the fall in Manchester, as they do. You know, it's 50 quid, you know, get on there. And yet in amongst that 101 bands or however many, so many of them achieve a status in years to come. Yet that wasn't the, as I say, the prerequisite or the... And it's eventually one of the reasons why Rock Against Racism as a, as a unit of individuals split is this idea between being grassroots and having a more uh, corporate... not well, you know, an identity that could see them through into the 80s, where the absolute opposite is, is, is uh, the two-tone tours or, or, mm-hmm. or Red Wedge, which really relies upon well-known names to promote the idea of what the tours are about. Right. I've got to ask you a question about, about a kind of technical question here, which fascinates me. How do you do a book like this? <laughs> You've got it. I mean, because it is oral history, isn't it? You know, so it's one person talks, and then another voice, and then another vo- another voice. And you on, talk to on each subject. So, how many people do you talk to? It's just over a hundred. Right. Uh, I wanted to. Was it difficult to get them? No, no, not really. There's a few difficult people. Uh, Jerry Danforth oh, took a year to, to decide <laughs> to do it, didn't he? Isn't that right? I would have waited two years for that man. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you know, Jerry was incredibly difficult uh, because Jerry cares so much about Two Turn and the representation of Two Turn. Right. And it's when Jerry realised I wanted to tell the political story of Two Turn. I mean, just just the fact that I learned as a Two Turn nut, I never knew that Jerry had set it up as a socialist record label. Uh, that was fascinating to hear from him. But the way I did it was I wanted to speak to as many people who were directly involved in the story. So whether that's the pop stars of the day, the politicians of the day, or, or, or more so, the activists. And what you... Gen- what yeah. yeah, the campaigners. And what you generally realise is that these are people that are trying to do good and not always getting it right. Mm. You know, and so... So what do you do? You write to all... So I'm going to write this book and I'd like to come and talk to you, basically. Yeah, and then, uh, 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 and then hassle, you know. And right. So getting, you know, it was a real thrill to get Kit Neil Kinnock involved. And yet when I went to meet him at the house, because Neil Kinnock was on the original steering committee of the Anti-Nazi League, you know, before he invites Red Wedge into Parliament. I went to see Neil at the House of Lords and within 30 seconds he had me like this up against the wall. <laughs> and he was telling me an anecdote about how he never hits anybody unless they hit him first. <laughs> I was thinking, did you have to demonstrate? <laughs> 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 but, but so, took... but do you, you interview everybody at great length and then, what, transcribe everything? Sorry, this is technical stuff. But I no, I mean, be, 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 uh, uh, Billy Bragg has said this a couple of times, that I went to see Billy in, in, in Dorset and we spoke for four hours or so um, and, then, and then Billy but I was really keen to speak to Billy's wife Juliet um, mm. and Juliet had managed the selector um, who, who form a, uh, an important part in the book and, 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 and much uh, and also because I also set out to try and make it equitable between the contributions of men and women um, and Juliet had also helped to co-run the two-tone office so after 
have, having spoken to Billy, I then ended up speaking to Juliet for seven hours. So it was a mammoth day. And Billy would just, you know... he, he they, up, they can all talk, these yeah, people. Yeah, but the, the, but, but the reason why I think it was relatively easy is because people were so, so cared still... I still want to know. You transcribe it all. <laughs> I do. And, and, and I'm a typer, no, like, I'm a typer like this. No, OK, but you've got four One hours finger, of two Billy, fingers. Four, four hours of Billy Bragg talking makes yeah. a lot of words. Yeah. No, it drove me nuts. Absolutely no, I'm sure nuts. it's really good. I so, just... then I, so then I, I transcribed every single interview. So I've got 100 interviews of 10 hours sometimes for an interview. Transcribed the whole lot. And then I went through every single interview and themed it. And then, and then I, I went, um, and then I went across every single interview, collating the themes. And then I had a collection of all those themes, and I had an idea. Did you have it in a wall planner like nope. they do on movies? No. no. Oh, I'm disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, and then I. Um, Feels very self-indulgent to talk about this. Sorry, I don't ever care. Asked me, I don't care. Ever I'm asked a writer. Me. I wanted to know. Be, put uh, you on the spot here. No, I love it. But <laughs> um, and then and then I, having known exactly what, pretty much what I wanted the structure of the book to be all the way along, apart from where they randomly take you somewhere else, I then began to select uh, from say thirty people talk about the carnival. Yeah. Let's get a, a, a sequence of events that makes uh, chronological sense. Who's telling the story that's, uh, that actually works? And you maybe get six versions of one story, then reduce that down. And, and, and I try to put in as many contradictions as possible. We definitely did that. We right. definitely didn't do that. Right. You did that. I didn't do that. You know, but nobody can so debate that, that did, nobody can argue that so didn't happen. So you don't happen. go back to them and say, now you told me at great length that you did this in, whatever, 1978. Well, I've told somebody else in the band and they say, no, you did it in 1982. And Those you, kind you, of events I corrected, you know, if, if somebody got go muddled. Right. I, I, do you know I was too nervous to? No, really? fine, I, I did. Fine. You know, okay, a little bit, but mm, yeah. No, okay, okay. But that's so that satisfied my curiosity. It, it was hard work. You've got to do it the slow way, haven't you? But I suppose, suppose the beauty is that once you come to put it on the page, it goes on the page quite quickly, doesn't it? Because you've done all the work in the interview. I, I guess relatively. I mean, my my days were were literally. I'd be at at, at it from. 8.30 in the morning, perhaps, and I'd happily just go until I dropped. And I'd do that every day of the week. It's, you know, it's, I don't... It's, I, I was completely and utterly in love with, oh with the stories. To me. Yeah, it was, it was so amazing to hear these stories. And, uh, right. and there's a joy, isn't there? You must know this far more than I do, because I don't have a... I'm not a journalist, I don't have that background whatsoever. But, that, that, but when you feel a narrative coming together and you feel a a history coming alive that's been forgotten about. You know, the amount of people that didn't know what Eric Clapton had done or continue as I meet people not to know. And to feel that you're bringing back to life such a, an important cultural moment in rock and roll history was, was so exciting to right, me. Right. To feel, I'm like, wow, I feel like maybe I'm the first person to know this. Yeah, know, yeah, so yeah, first footprint in the stand. Could, could, could uh, Two-Tone have happened without Rock Against Racism, do you think? Do you think that was the platform that, that, that helped launch it? Absolutely. And, yeah. and, and, and Jerry says that, that that was one of the formative influences. He yeah. set out consciously to form a multicultural band now contrary to what other two-tone people say he says that in coventry in the mid-70s very few black and white musicians mixed and so he went uh, in search and found limval golding 
um, and, and invited him because he wanted an authentic trebly Fender Telecaster on specials records and invited him to join. Lin Linval promptly left. You know, and, and uh, he brought in Neville Staple. And his original idea for Neville, which he told me, uh, uh, which is fascinating, was to have a mixer off stage. And Neville's job was to going to be to mix live the specials as, as a dub live performance. And he said it never really happened because Neville got onto the microphone while the specials were playing in Leeds and started doing his uh, patois kind of... Uh, um, toasting, yeah. and then and then the manager Rick Rogers, who speaks in there, so, you know, says you've got to get on stage, Neville, and Neville joins the band. But so 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 Jerry set out a multicultural band uh, in in uh, they just toured with the Clash. They saw the audiences that were coming to Clash concerts. They saw the fights and particularly the Sham Army, and Jerry realised that that was an army that needed a positive. Uh, role model uh, or a way to be from music coming from the stage. So these were deliberate and conscious ideas fed from when he went to see a raw gig in Coventry that Misty uh, played at, in which his mate, he tells a story about his mate bunked into the gig through a dumb waiter. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I can imagine the idea of crawling in a dumb waiter. To there's get a great it. story in the book about the selector who used to have these sort of fake fights on stage to diffuse the violence in the audience. They yeah. used to pretend to attack each other on stage. It, it, it's absolutely and the audience was so stunned. They were going, what the hell's going on? You know? uh, absolutely. It's amazing. They would literally down their instruments yeah. and have... A, and, and because, as, as you read in the chapter, the, I mean, the great... I mean, the thing I try to do with Two Tone is place the, the, the reader in the band, on the stage. What's it like to be in the selector where you've got one white man, six black people, one woman, a mix of class, people that don't necessarily know each other that well, who are trying to espouse the values of, of what two-tone was perceived by an audience to be. Can this actually exist within the bands themselves? That was the question that I was raising. Yeah. And, 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 and the answer is, it was damn difficult, and, they, and, it, and it causes all manner of fights and problems. So when they down their instruments, as a way to the, say to the National Front, look how crazy it is when people have a fight for no reason and shock them into stopping fighting. They were actually laying into each other every so often for real. You know? <laughs> right. And it got a bit out of hand, yeah. you know. And yeah. there's amazing footage of that in the Dance Craze film where if anybody's ever seen Dance Craze, which is the collation of all the, the two-turn live footage of band after band after band, and you see this sequence where they do exactly that. And, and likewise, I mean, the specials of the band that started it, where they there was more tomfoolery in the, yeah. in the specials, but they would bring on fake glasses and, uh, uh, you know, uh, bottles and I'd smash each other over the head. concrete jungle, that's right. Glasses, bottles made of sugar or something. But when you read yeah. about the antagonism that Jerry Dammers uh, 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 was, uh, was feeling for much of his own band, you view that footage slightly differently. You know, you have to remember that this is a man that when he presented Ghost Town was, was, was being rejected by his own band. You know, they didn't want that. But more's the story that is fascinating that Jerry tells is when he talks about how Rod Stewart and Brick Eklund were the symbol in the early 70s of everything that he and his mates and peers and what he thought punk stood for should never become. So when the specials became supremely famous, you know, two number ones successfully beginning, you know, Saturday Night Live in America and they're getting offered chauffeurs and great hotels he's saying no 
You know, this is the moment where we don't become Britain Rod and the band Working Class Roots. You know, are you We're kidding? Thinking, why not? Yeah, of course, you. <laughs> yeah. You're you you what what you working for? You know, but have you? How many pop stars have you ever heard assuming the the, the yeah. that kind of, you know, um, what's been laid on for them? And and it's an incredible angle that he takes. You know, about the 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 understanding of what money genuinely is. And, you know, and if, if this is a man talking about people on the streets and people suffering in the way that he does throughout the, within the lyrics of the specials, and then you heard that he was living the life of royalty like the Clash were, then you send suddenly the whole argument is, is, uh, is being pulled away, isn't it? Or in danger of, of just fading into a nothingness. And Jerry held strong. And, uh, and so it... You know, I, I said I, I said to Jerry, I will not write a two-tone chapter unless you contribute. It just, it just felt disingenuous to do that. You know, and so, so this real... is this is kind of two-tone at the height here. This is the two-tone. Brighton this... Beach. This was first issue of the Face. I think this picture was in. So when are we talking about? Yeah, it was 1980, I suppose. 1979. 79. Yeah. Okay. This is the day well, that Juliet the becomes the selector manager. Selector. Yeah, yeah. It's for Pauline Black's here. This is Barso for Madness, uh, Woody for Madness, who wouldn't do the Reg- Wedge tour. Because uh, uh, there's Jerry, who got. Uh, I think they're the entourage they're, with Neville. But they were they were a national phenomenon, weren't they at the time? That whole thing. Every teenager in Britain wanted a bit of that. Didn't well, they? It, it becomes a phenomenon. I mean, this is the incredible thing that you you went for two pounds fifty. You saw this is it. You saw Madness. Uh, the selector and the specials yeah. revolving. Uh, yeah. Uh, later Dexes would come in, and probably um, two pound fifty paid on the door as well. Yeah, didn't and, even get a ticket. You know? and, and the extraordinary thing is, Rick, uh, the manager of the specials and the two-tone organizer, kind of makes a comparison between the cost of an album and the tour to now, and it's shocking how cheap it was to see. And within a, a matter, and this is like the idea is to do a Motown review, really. They all go out on the same coach, they do over 40 dates, and they, Rick's getting out in the middle of the tour on the side of the motorway, phoning up venues. No, it's been cancelled. No, why is it been cancelled? Because we've had to move you to another venue. And he's organising as they go along. Um, and it becomes commercially two-toned bigger than punk you know they're, they're, these are these are bands that are tears of a clown the first beat single with ranking full stop sells these are number, a million number one records number six well, but, okay but other but ones it, but, yeah. in de- but in december but in <laughs> yeah. december the hardest market in in you know a number six record you know and then but message to you really a quarter of a million sales yes. on a single alone yeah. It's extraordinary, isn't it? It is. You know, it's a way bigger than anything, really, that punk punk does. You know, um, and it lasts, uh, and for t- for, you know, up until the mid summer of eighty one, the specials headline the very last uh, Rock Against Racism carnival in the summer of ninety one. And it's Im- I think it's important to remember that that much as the the raw people who I spoke to talk about handing the baton of Rock Against Racism. Two two tone. Red Saunders said, "When we saw the specials, it was everything we dreamed of." But you have to remember that two tone ran concurrently with Rock Against Racism, and the first phase of two tone finishes at the same time as Rock Against Racism does. Before you know, you get into bands like the Higsons and the Apollinaires, and of course, the end piece of the book, which is the whole Nelson Mandela mm. Artists Against mm. Apartheid chapter. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Again, initiated by Jerry. Yeah. But, so, so, but madness start to, you know, take off on their own, don't they? They become a, a force on their own, don't they? Well, the, 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 the idea... 
when you signed to two turn, the idea was you do a single and then you're free to go, no contracts. And that's exactly what Madness did. They do two covers of a of Prince Buster, and and then leave to form Stiff Records, uh, to, not to form to, to join, go to, yeah, to, yeah, yeah. To, to join Stiff. But then they there's a there's a, Cattle, the um, Chaz Smash is is the main contributor here, and he he he's an extraordinary voice, um, incredibly intelligent and and very um, uh, deep in his philosophy for the man who is the dancer you know and ends up being the trumpet player ends up writing our house and wings of a dove but he gets into a lot of problems because that he gets accused of being the racist in the band he even gets accused by the guitar player of being of being racist and it, and it's it, it and it gets blown up by the media and and it's a very troubled time for him but the, as somebody says you know if you're growing up in kentish town and camden in the 1970s, you're going to know people who were in the National Front. You're going to know people who were in the British movement. And Cahill does. And he finds an escape and an understanding and a release through music. And the way he articulates that is, is quite incredible to where he ends up also being on the Red Wedge tour, but essentially there to promote Greenpeace. Um, this is, I mean, this is a Rhoda Dacca and the Body Snatchers, seven women. This is an, quite an extraordinary story, that their own chapter, where... Um, you give them a whole chapter, don't you, which is very significant, because uh, presumably because they were the, there weren't very many all-girl groups at the time. No, you'd have I mean, the, the slits. I mean, the Modettes, maybe. Uh, Modettes, the slits, the, yeah. The, the raincoats and people like that before. And Nikki here has been going to the punk gigs, and she's inspired to want to form a band. So she forms a band with Rhoda, and they... Rhoda ends up recording with Nikki what I regard as the most political and extraordinary socially political uh, record that ex- exists in rock and roll history which is the boiler which is uh, as you well know the recounting of a rape and the last minute of that record is, is Rhoda screaming reenacting the rape which you can't imagine radio 1 playing these days and yet it charted <laughs> and radio it 1 did oh yeah and it radio 1 played really it well. peel yeah. played it yeah which is extraordinary. It's absolutely extraordinary. There's a moment at the end, because uh, uh, we should get on to Red Wedge in a minute, but we talked about Chrysalis suddenly losing interest in, in Two-Tone, who they bought and distributed, yeah. because they suddenly got more interested in Spandau Ballet and all these <laughs> other acts that were you know, in the pop charts and uh, making money for them. That, is, that, is that right? I suppose they, it was all just naturally coming to an end. Uh, yeah, I mean the music. The music was changing, you know, and as 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 any band changes, doesn't it? You yeah. Know, and you know, you can get into arguments. Should your specials have released "Enjoy Yourself" as a single? Yeah. To to precipitate to precipitate to pre what's the word pre something before it? The thing you do before prefigure. And Preempt? Preclude. <laughs> Preclude. <laughs> Over to the audience for this one. <laughs> so tell us about... Re- go on. Yeah, cut. Tell us about Red Wedge. <laughs> tell us what... How does Red Wedge start? It starts with uh, the miners' strike, the women's movement, and Billy Bragg, and lots of musicians who are opposing the, uh, the, the Margaret Thatcher government meeting on stages... And when the miners' strike is uh, is defeated uh, by the Thatcher government in the spring of 1985, Billy basically turns to all his mates and says, do we go back to the glossy pages of Smash It with our wacky haircuts or do we actually do something with this momentum? He speaks to Weller and he crucially speaks to Anna Joy David. And the three of them 
form Red Wedge. They immediately hold a meeting. Neil Spencer, who is the who's here tonight, who is the editor of the NME from 78, and again, a really critical person in the, the story of reggae and British reggae up to that point, becomes the press secretary. Tons of people sign up. Tim Roth signs up. Ray Davis signs up. You know, and the, 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 they want to they want to get rid of Margaret Thatcher at the next general election. But the way they decide to do it is to do two simple things. They will try and uh, encourage a youth audience, 18 to 24, to become politicised and, and urge that demographic to register to vote. Because in this period, in the mid-1980s, 6 million 18 to 24-year-olds were unre- are unregistered to vote, which is a figure equitable to today, just prior to the 2017 general election. And you imagine 6 million kids signing up to vote. That would, that would, that's a revolutionary like act, isn't yeah. it? So Red Wedge say, we will offer you tours with Madness, the Communards, uh, uh, the Star Council, Billy Bragg, the Smiths, uh, a whole swathe of bands. We will offer you tours. We'll offer you comedy tours. Ben Alton, Harry Enfield, mm. Robbie Coltrane, all these kind of names. In return, politically, from that man there in the middle, Neil Kinnock, we want an influence in, in party policy. And that's where Anna Joy David really comes into play. And, and Neil's um, uh, casts his eye over what becomes the Red Wedge Manifesto. Now, this isn't a pop star manifesto of, give us this and we'll give you... Uh. This is some really considered political thought, housing, jobs, education. And, and the amazing thing, talking to apparatchiks around Neil Kinnock and talking to Kinnock himself and Angela Eagle and Claire Short and Tom Watson, all who play and figure in the story in some way or another... Kinnock says that when he, the Labour Party drew up the papers for the 1992 government that wasn't, the Red Wedge ideas were there in black and white. They'd been formulated by Gordon Brown, who at that point was industry, uh, trade and industry, which is very important, trade and industry. Um, the ideas of Red Wedge are there. And so this is, you know, in the history of Red Wedge, the, they're, they're discarded because with the headline, Billy Bragg lost the 1987 yeah. general election <laughs> yeah. on his own. Therefore, Red Wedge is a failure. It's, that's nonsense. Did, did the Labour Party... Who's that? <laughs> Pete Jenner. Oh, oh, this, is, this, is the, this is a picture of the touring entourage, which is just extraordinary, isn't it? Because the most famous person... Uh, in this picture now, went on to be Dave, a vicar. A Church and of England vicar. Church is now, vicar. Now featuring on, uh, on, on Strictly Come Dancer. The rocking vicar. <laughs> so it just shows that uh, you never know how yeah. things are going to work out. And a director of Red Wedge was Richard Coles. Yes. Um, uh, Jerry Dammers with no teeth at the back. Um, the, uh, what's her name? The poet uh, from Jules. Jules. Jules, the poet. Yeah. Um, and she tells some incredible stories. What's it like to be a woman on stage? I've, I've been spat at. I've been bottled. 
I've been sexually assaulted. I mean, she goes into great detail about about women's plight and particularly uh, her role within Red Wedge. She, Red Wedge then put on the women's tour. This is, again, groundbreaking stuff and a history that has been totally forgotten. And, uh, and, it's, and it was exciting to bring it back to life, to say there was a women's tour. Sandy Shaw was on it, mm. backed mm. by Johnny Marr, the only man allowed to play on the tour. And refuses at one point to, to, to turn up. She says she threatens not to come and play. What yeah, was that about? Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> but, but somebody's pleading. You know, the girl yeah. from Sensible Footwear is pleading on the phone, and uh, up until the moment she walks on stage, never knows if Sandy will appear. Yeah. And there's this incredible bill with Tracy Thorne. You know, where she goes on the tour, and the moment that Glennis Clinic just before it, she's admiring Glennis's red rose, the new Labour red rose, and Glennis gives it back gives it to Tracy before she goes out at Nottingham. And then as she comes off the stage, she gets the badge back. <laughs> Tracy can't keep it. Right. I, 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 I don't know if you mentioned this earlier. I mean, but did this culminate in some way in the Mandela concert? Was well, there a connection? Well, this is the thing that Phil Dupasis talks about in the book, you know, as was Porky the Poet, where what was the greatest political record ever that this country's had first, it has to be do you think it's Christmas because of the lives it saved and the millions it generated. Second, it's Nelson Mandela with the chorus Free Nelson Mandela, performed by the special AKA, written by Jerry Dammers. So Jerry writes that before Live Aid and starts to put on and establishes and starts to put on Artists Against Apartheid concerts. The first one, a quarter of a million people on Clapham Common. The single biggest demonstration against apartheid in the world, I think. Um, that leads to this event um, in 1988 and then again in 1990 at Wembley. And I think that, that I, 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 it caused a chronological problem within the book because it means going back in time to tell a story that ends in 1990. But what I really wanted to do for the reader was to say, here at the beginning was Clapton, Wogs and Packies go back home. Here we are in 1990. Nelson Mandela stands on that stage with his fist aloft. He's a free man. His country isn't free. That's to come within another year or so. And the reason he's there is because these are all pop fans. Yeah. You know, and, and, and they all celebrate with, the, with the, the encore of the song Nelson Mandela. And what an extraordinary thing that a youth generation, this is the argument I try to make, is being flipped from the casual racism of Alf Garnet of the black and white minstrel show of, is it Bless This House, Bless Thy Neighbour? L- yeah. Love Thy Neighbour. They've been flipped from that and the casual race, uh, 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 the derogatory comments about women, the, the, the anti-gay comments and whatever else exists in the 70s has been flipped to the end of the 80s where of all the mad things, pop music has made it hip to be anti all these things and provide us today... I think in many ways with a society... I think it's Robert Elms that most eloquently says this in the book. But we now have a society that is so much more liberal in terms of gay rights that the the au pairs were talking about and Tom Robinson in terms of black and white coming together. In terms... You know, all these things... um, We still have problems. It's not a rosy thing. And we we also go back, don't we? But, But this generation that I define as 16 years... It, it is utterly extraordinary. You know, the, 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 the idea of politics and music generating and harnessing and bringing in... 600 million people watch that concert. Watch a pop concert about politics, essentially. It's extraordinary. Two final questions. 
One, when are you running for office? <laughs> Seriously. No, you're not. Two. I've avoided offices all my life. <laughs> Two, if anybody wants to buy your book, can they buy a copy off you? They can do that. They can. They can buy that or, or they can read about my previous one with Chris and Glenn in Isle of Noises. In know? Isle of Noises. Thank you very much. It's been absolutely enthralling. It's an enthralling book. Daniel Rachel. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, baby. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. <laughs>